Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. Since 2007, 21 severed human feet have washed ashore from the Salish Sea. But where did they come from? December 2016, Antonio Neal, a 22-year-old man from Everett, Washington, said goodbye to his mother for what would be, it turns out, the final time. Neal was spending the night at a friend's house, but when he failed to return the next day, his mother, Jenny, became instantly worried. People who'd been with Neal the night before told her that he'd been seen fighting with another man shortly before he disappeared which only seemed to confirm her worst suspicions. No trace of Neil would be found for two years. Then, on New Year's Day 2019, a boot was found washed ashore on Jetty Island, close to Everett. Inside the shoe were the remains of a human foot, which would later prove, through DNA analysis, to belong to Antonio Neil. The foot provided one answer. It confirmed that Neil was dead. For Jenny, though, it failed to provide any closure, leaving questions about where the rest of his body might be and how he ended up in the river in the first place. To this day, Jenny maintains that some kind of foul play was involved in her son's death. What she may not have known on New Year's Day 2019 is that her son's case was about to become more complicated as he joined a pantheon of victims in the long-standing case of the severed feet of the Salish Sea. On August 20th, 2007, a 12-year-old girl from Washington State was visiting Jedediah Island in British Columbia when she stumbled across a size 12 Adidas shoe. When she looked inside, she found that it still contained the remains of a man's right foot. Then, just six days after this odd discovery, a couple found another foot washed ashore on Gabriola Island, British Columbia. It was a man's foot in a size 12 Reebok sneaker. A third foot would be found on February 8th, 2008, on Valdez Island, British Columbia. Another man's right foot, this time wearing a size 11 Nike shoe. Naturally, there was a lot of confusion. After the discovery of the first two feet just six days apart, there was speculation that the feet may have come from the victims of an accident on February 28, 2005, when a plane containing five men went down in the water off the coast of Quadra Island. Whether this theory was still in play when foot three was discovered is unclear, but it was seemingly debunked with the discovery of foot four on May 22, 2008. A woman's right foot in a blue and white New Balance sneaker. While the discovery of a woman's foot seemed to disprove the plane crash theory, another idea quickly became popular. This theory suggested that these feeds belonged to the victims of the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami. This theory seems to have been spawned largely due to foot one, 
which was found in an Adidas running shoe, produced in 2003 and sold primarily in India, which certainly does pin the date and location down to the right place for the tsunami theory. The shoes on the next three feet were produced in 2004, 2003, and 1999, which would also fit the theory. These three shoes, however, were primarily sold in North America. The tsunami theory, though, persisted. The theory might seem plausible at first. After all, the earthquake and the tsunami that it caused are among the worst and most deadly natural disasters, and it doesn't seem to be a huge leap to think that forces powerful enough to destroy a whole town in minutes could carry the bodies of its victims many miles away from where they died. In reality, however, even if the waves and currents were strong enough to carry body parts across the Pacific, there were far too many land obstacles to make this theory a possibility. Most victims of the tsunami died in Banda Aceh, Indonesia, or on the west coast of Thailand. Even if currents were able to carry the bodies down and around the coasts of Thailand and Malaysia without washing ashore, they would then have to flow around the islands of Indonesia and the Philippines before finally reaching the Pacific Ocean, all without washing ashore. And while this theory has been popular, it hasn't held up well, as investigations have unearthed the identities of many of the Salish Sea feet. The first foot was identified as belonging to a man whose name has been withheld. While details about his cause of death remain unknown, it is known that he'd been suffering from depression. The third foot was identified as belonging to a 21-year-old man from Surrey, British Columbia, who'd been reported missing four years earlier. Police consider his death not suspicious, implying that they believe he died in an accident or through suicide. On June 16, 2008, hikers on West Ham Island found foot number five, a left foot which would be identified as belonging to the man from Surrey. The fourth foot was identified as belonging to a woman who died by suicide when she jumped from the Petulo Bridge in New Westminster in April 2004. Her left foot would also be found on November 11, 2008 in Richmond, British Columbia. It was the seventh foot found on the shores of the Salish Sea. Unfortunately, there would be less luck in identifying victims over the coming years. On August 1st, 2008, a right foot inside a man's size 11 shoe was found by a camper on a beach near Pisht, Washington. It was the first foot found outside of British Columbia, although police said they believed it may have been carried south from Canada by the current, as it was found just 16 kilometers from the Canada-US border. The foot was not identified. On October 27, 2009, a right foot inside a size eight and a half Nike running shoe was found on a beach near Richmond, British Columbia, and identified as belonging to a Vancouver area man who was reported missing in January 2008. On August 27, 2010, a bare right foot belonging to a woman or a child was found on Whidbey Island, Washington, having been submerged in the water for approximately two months. The foot was never identified. On December 5, 2010, a right foot inside a boy's size 6 hiking boot was discovered in Tacoma, Washington. It was never identified. On August 30th, 2011, a foot was discovered inside a man's size 9 running shoe in False Creek, British Columbia. Unlike the other finds, it had disarticulated at the knee, 
and was still attached to the lower leg bones. Foot number 12 is a bit of an outlier. It was a right foot found inside a size 12 hiking boot by a group of campers on November 4th, 2011. And in January 2012, the foot was identified as belonging to Stefan Zarahuko, a fisherman who went missing in 1987, making this foot by far the oldest to be included in the canon of the Salish Sea feet. Foot number 13 also stands out. This was an unidentified foot and leg bone inside a plastic bag found under the Ship Canal Bridge in Lake Union, Seattle. There's a clear difference between this foot and the others. Where the others leave the cause of death as a complete mystery, the fact that foot 13 was found inside a plastic bag is a clear implication of foul play, and it's one of only two Salish Sea feet discovered without a shoe. But one idea that foot 13 does seem to lend credibility to is the third major theory why these feet keep washing ashore. A serial killer. There is little else behind this theory, and in reality, it resembles an urban myth more than an actual explanation for the Salish feet, with the extent of this theory being that a serial killer is stalking the streets of British Columbia, or another area bordered by the Salish Sea, killing victims and dumping their bodies in the water. When you think through the implications of the 13th discovery, though, it quickly becomes apparent that this works against the theory more than it supports it. If the previous feat were the work of a serial killer, then the clear pattern implies a consistent behaviour, behaviour which doesn't apply to foot 13. Why did the killer strip the shoes and socks from this body, but not the others? Why did they bag up this body, but not the others? It also asks more questions than it answers. If this victim's leg was intentionally removed, as suggested by its separate bagging, then did the killer also remove the other victim's legs or feet before disposing of their bodies? Were foot 13 and foot 9 deliberately stripped bare? And if so, why was this not done to the other victims? It's also worth remembering that the severed feet had been a notable story for years by this point, and the phenomenon of them washing ashore was a well-known thing. Would we expect a serial killer to change his behaviour in a situation like this, or would they stick to the same pattern? There are certain reasons a serial killer may stick to what he knows. Some killers even go so far as to tease the police with clues, as they thrive on the thrill that they might be caught, but ultimately evade detection. But typically, a killer of this flavour might seek greater fame, and a moniker or a calling card of some kind. They would certainly want to make themselves known, and there's nothing in this case to suggest that anyone was trying to make a name for themselves as the Salish Foot Severer. The alternative, of course, is that a killer wanting to evade detection would change up their location or their methods in order to prevent police from connecting their crimes and building a paper trail. That, however, is just not what happened. Severed feet would continue to be found in and around the Salish Sea, following much the same pattern as the previous feet. On January 26, 2012, a foot in a boot was discovered in Vancouver. Later, on May 6, 2014, a foot in a New Balance running shoe was found in Seattle, Washington. Neither foot was identified. On February 7th, hikers on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, discovered a foot inside a running shoe. Five days later, 
a second foot was found in the same location. While the feet were confirmed to be a pair, the victim was never identified. The next foot was found on December 8, 2017, again on Vancouver Island. Both bones of the lower leg were still attached. It would later be identified as Stanley Okamoto, a 79-year-old man from Kitsap County, Washington, who went missing on September 17th. His body had previously been found floating in the water on November 8th, missing his leg. On May 6, 2018, another foot was discovered within a hiking boot on Gabriola Island, British Columbia, and in September 2018, the 20th foot was found in a size 9.5 Nike running shoe. And finally, with the 21st foot in this 14-year mystery, we circle back to Antonio Neal, whose severed foot was discovered on January 1st, 2019, more than two years after he disappeared. With so much information about so many unidentified victims, it's easy for the details of this case to blur into one, so it's helpful to break down some of this information into some easier to digest numbers. 21 feet were discovered over a 14 year period, 19 were in shoes, of the two bare feet, one was found inside a plastic bag, an outlier in the usual pattern. Feet 3 and 5, feet 4 and 7, and feet 16 and 17 were matched as pairs for a total of 18 victims. Of those victims, 7 have been identified, while 11 remain unidentified. As far as we know from information publicly available, the cause of death is known for only one victim, a suicide. While other causes of death are apparently unknown, at least three victims had a history of depression. Of the 18 victims, eight are known to be men, one is known to be a woman, and two are thought to be children or small women. As far as we know, foul play is not suspected in any case, although the case of Antonio Neal remains open. So, with all of this information, what are we to make of this case? We've discussed three primary theories. The first, the plane crash is easily disproven by later discoveries. The second, the tsunami, is disproven by the many identified victims, the post-2004 production date on some of the shoes, and by the implausibility of disarticulated feet being carried away from Thailand to the Salish Sea without first washing ashore elsewhere. The third theory, that a serial killer stalks the area is technically possible, but it's so unlikely that it can really be disregarded unless further evidence comes to light to support this idea. But what can we conclude from what we do know? Well, it's worth remembering that there's actually very little that connects these deaths together. The only factor they all share is the fact that in each case, the victim's foot disarticulated from the rest of their body and washed ashore. This, in itself, is actually not a difficult phenomenon to explain. The ankle is a relatively weak joint on the human body, and when submerged underwater, where bodies can be subject to both accelerated decomposition and movement from the currents, hands and feet are often the first parts to separate from the rest of the body. We don't see many hands washing ashore, but of course, hands are often unprotected and are susceptible to the same decomposition as the rest of the body. Hands may become skeletonized and break apart, while feet, thanks to the protection of the shoe, will tend to remain intact and fleshy 
You'll also have noticed that the feet that washed ashore from the Salish Sea are overwhelmingly wearing light running shoes, or similar sneakers. These types of shoes tend to be more buoyant and are likely to be one of the primary reasons that the feet are floating to the surface. That's the favoured explanation for the severed feet of the Salish Sea. Unrelated bodies, of people who may have died under different, unrelated circumstances, decompose underwater to the point that their weak ankle joints allow the foot to disarticulate from the leg before floating to the surface with the help of the buoyant running shoes. To say that this is the answer to the mystery, we need to ask ourselves if this explanation adequately explains all of our questions. Unfortunately, there is one mystery remaining. If the explanation is simply weak ankles and buoyant shoes, why do we only find this phenomenon in the Salish Sea? There is no evidence that this area has higher rates of water-related deaths than similar places. So what could be causing this to happen here, and only here? Well, the first answer is that it doesn't. There are multiple examples of similar phenomena happening elsewhere in the world, in 1993, a left foot in a Nike Air running shoe washed ashore in Clevedon, Somerset, in the UK. The following year, the right foot would also float to the surface. The remains were never identified. In 2013, a skeletonized foot inside a tennis shoe washed ashore on a New Jersey beach. DNA tests would match the foot of Francesca Alvarado, who disappeared in 2012. In 2004, a decomposing foot inside a size 11 kicker's training shoe washed ashore on a Merseyside beach in the UK. The remains were never identified. Similar stories can be found in Maryland and Michigan and South Carolina, multiple examples not only across the country, but across the globe. Even so, it's possible that this phenomenon is still occurring in the Salish Sea at a greater rate than in these other examples, but this doesn't debunk our theory. It just offers another question. Why here? Assuming similar locations have similar rates of water deaths, and therefore similar amounts of bodies beneath the rivers and lakes, what could be increasing the likelihood of them floating to the surface, in the Salish Sea specifically? If we think about what might increase the buoyancy of a particular body of water, the easiest answer would be salinity. In bodies of water with high salt content, the water tends to be more dense, and therefore it's easier for things to float on the surface. This is why it's possible to float on the surface of the Red Sea. And indeed, when we look at the Salish Sea, what we see is a combination of fresh water from rivers and salt water from the Pacific Ocean. Typically, in a scenario like this, salt water would settle at the bottom, while the less dense fresh water would float closer to the surface. In the Salish Sea, however, strong currents see the fresh water on top flow out to the Pacific Ocean, and this displacement causes salt water to be sucked upwards, closer to the surface. So, unless any information to the contrary comes to light, our solution seems pretty likely. Various water deaths result in quickly decomposing bodies underwater, where a weak ankle joint causes feet to disarticulate. A combination of their buoyant sneakers and the rising salt water of the Salish Sea helps them rise to the surface, where they are eventually carried to shore. 
So, with our mystery solved for the time being, it's time to hear some weird science. Weird science. While writing this episode, the Salish Sea Feet mystery led me down a bit of a rabbit hole of research into tsunamis, which are an absolutely fascinating event, and so I thought I'd share a bit of what I've learned in this month's Weird Science. So to start with, what exactly is a tsunami? Whereas waves are typically created either by wind or by the tidal forces of the moon, the waves in a tsunami are a consequence of the displacement of water due to a large event, typically an undersea earthquake. Because of the huge size and wavelength of these waves, they don't present as a breaking wave as we might typically imagine them, which is evident in the eerily calm footage taken the morning of December 26, 2004, when the Indian Ocean tsunami struck. Rather than violent, crashing waves, there's simply a rising tide, one that doesn't even worry many of the people present. It's only when the speed of the rising water level becomes apparent that walks transform into runs, and curiosity becomes panic. Tsunami waves can travel up to 500 miles per hour, but due to their immense wavelengths, low amplitude, and slow oscillation, they can be imperceptible to any boats that may pass, which makes it difficult to detect tsunamis and provide sufficient warning to those on the coast. Then, as the waves reach shallower water, their wavelength decreases, which increases their amplitude, that is, the height of the wave, meaning that waves that may have been imperceptible out at sea are catastrophically damaging when they reach the shore. This is actually where the name tsunami comes from. It's Japanese for harbour wave, and comes from the stories of fishermen who would go out to sea and experience nothing but calm waters, only to return to find their villages destroyed. So, if tsunamis can go undetected at sea, how do we develop a warning system? Well, the simple answer is, we can't. Current tsunami warning systems take a lot of measurements out at sea in order to predict the likelihood of a dangerous event. But there's still a lot we don't know about this phenomenon, like why some earthquakes cause tsunamis while others don't. So any warning system is far from perfect. One warning sign that occurs in the minutes before a tsunami wave hits is a receding tide. This bizarre phenomenon can also be seen in the first-hand footage from the 2004 tsunami, as people film in shock and wonder as the ocean just seems to shrink away into the distance at a rapid pace, leaving more than a mile of beach freshly exposed. Unfortunately, this led a lot of people to rush to the beach hoping to witness this odd event and see what was going on, with no idea of what was to come. The receding waterline, of course, was the result of the water being sucked back by the displacement caused by the earthquake, and all of that water ultimately had to come back to shore. One uplifting story from the 2004 disaster involved a 10-year-old girl named Tilly Smith, who was on holiday in Thailand with her parents, when the tsunami struck. Two weeks before the trip, Tilly had learned about tsunamis in school, and she had learned about the receding water as a warning sign. She told her parents, 
who alerted the hotel staff. An mass evacuation took place, with the beach being successfully cleared in a few minutes before the first wave struck. Over the next few minutes, many people would die on the beaches across the coast of Thailand, but a hundred beachgoers would count themselves as survivors, thanks to the quick thinking of Tilly Smith. The earthquake that would cause the Indian Ocean tsunami was the third biggest earthquake ever recorded, and the energy released was equivalent to 1,500 detonations of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. It caused the entire planet to vibrate up to 10 millimeters. Almost a quarter of a million people died that day, making the earthquake and tsunami one of the deadliest natural disasters in human history. And now, it's time to explore a ghostly encounter. Stanley Palace was built in 1591 and initially belonged to MP and lawyer Sir Peter Warburton. Upon his death in 1621, the house passed to his daughter Elizabeth, whose husband, Sir Thomas Stanley, gave the house its name. The house was eventually converted to apartments in the early 19th century and became a boys' school in the 1870s. Eventually, ownership found its way to Chester City Council in 1928, who remain the owners today. The building is now said to have an incredibly changeable atmosphere, with constant temperature changes which has been put down to supernatural causes. Multiple people have been reported seeing spirits in the house, convincing many people that Stanley Palace is indeed haunted. The spirit of Elizabeth, the previous owner who inherited the house from her father, has been seen wandering the halls, as has the ghost of a man dressed flamboyantly in a gold and white outfit. He's said to appear for just a few seconds before mysteriously vanishing into thin air. Another ghost is the spirit of a lady known as Edie, who has even been caught on camera sitting at a piano. During that same video, a chair was reportedly caught moving across the room of its own accord. Perhaps the most unnerving spectre spotted at Stanley Palace is the spirit of a little girl that had been spotted on the stairs as though she had fallen down them. This has led people to speculate that perhaps this is the ghost of a girl who died on those very stairs. One witness who saw this ghost reported seeing a blue light emerge from the little girl's body and float up towards the ceiling before the light and the girl both vanished. It would seem that this is not the only child who haunts Stanley Palace, as a caretaker has reported hearing the sound of children laughing and playing when the building was empty. And that's not the only disembodied sound heard inside Stanley Palace, as people have also reported hearing the voice of a lady singing. The house is also said to often be filled with an unexplained mist, as well as strange, unexplained lights. Stanley Palace hit the news in 2014, when paranormal investigators conducted an investigation in the property, and claimed to have caught some of the spirits on camera. Sefton Paranormal Investigators discovered the apparitions while looking back over footage recorded during their investigation. In the clip, investigators Joanne May and Aaron Robinette are sitting in front of the staircase, while shapes appear on the stairs behind them. According to Pamela Robinette, a co-founder of Sefton Paranormal, 
The apparitions appear to be children, and their hair and facial features can be made out quite clearly in the footage. Interpretations of this blurry video may differ, however. Another paranormal investigation in 2016 claimed to have witnessed significant supernatural phenomena. Equipment recorded a rapid drop in temperature from 20.5 degrees to 16.8 degrees, and investigators witnessed furniture rocking from side to side, and a disembodied voice apparently shushing the visitors. Attempts were also made to contact spirits with a Ouija board, which reportedly revealed the presence of a 49-year-old man. Another ritual, in which a blindfolded person acts as a conduit for the spirits, revealed the ghost of a 79-year-old man who was born in 1632 and worked in law enforcement. However, the only evidence of any paranormal phenomena from that night that isn't witness testimony came in the form of a couple of photographs which supposedly captured spirits. In the first, a pair of hooded figures appear on the staircase. In the second, a strange, almost demonic face appears in a mirror, floating just above the face of one of the investigators. Both photos are quite blurry, however, and hardly constitute definitive proof, which means the mystery of Stanley Palace and its numerous ghostly events will remain just that, a mystery. That's everything we've got for you today, but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co dot uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in, and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. If you want to get in touch, you can also find us on social media. Our handle everywhere is Fear by Zoinks. And you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally, if you have a moment, we'd love a rating and a review on whichever app you're using to get your podcasts. It would really help us out. Until next time, stay spooky. Thank you.